What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Have you ever met that funny reefer man? Have you ever met that funny reefer man? If he says he swam to China, wants to sell you South Carolina, then you know you're talking to that reefer man. Have you ever met that funny, funny reefer man? Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Adjust Your Tracking is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes and those of our other shows on the network at theplaylist.net. So, Joe, uh, we got the house cleaning out of the way. Um, tough sell. That's been a word. Uh, it's been a, a, a line for us so far yep. in this young 2019 cinematic year. Um, and it and it continues. We're gonna double. We're gonna double down on the tough sells in this episode. But oh um, yeah, uh, maybe maybe we should really dig into what we mean by that before we dive into what I would like to say right at the top is you know we're gonna be talking about two really good small movies. That are worth your time, but uh, you know, let's contextualize a little bit. What do you? How, how do we define a tough sell, or what do we mean when we say that? Well, I think that like in the in the sort of dearth and the sort of overload of content available, people need like there's there's a potential for an incredible variety of different types of uh, work art. Like there's just like an incredible vast array of things, and in that sense, I think the the dualistic part of that is that people things people need things narrowed down aggressively because there's so much at their like disposal. Yeah. And like, they need to know like, why am I watching this? Like I hear that a lot from people like, why should I be watching? Why should I care? (laughs) And like, that's a hard thing to like tell somebody because like caring is such a subjective experience. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about tough cells, like in, in terms of things constantly competing for our attention, our incredibly fragmented, diminishing attention, people like it's, it's almost like you need the, the fast acting uh, entertainment hook, which like oftentimes are a little bit hollow, a little bit kind of like uh, by the numbers formulaic, uh, assembly lined into creation, focus group to death. Um, but there's there's a clip to it. There's an easy sort of sell that, like, there's there's a hook to it, and people understand the angle, the the appeal, the gimmick. Um, and like tough sells, oftentimes a lot with like a lot of the films we've been discussing, are things that have are a little bit more like paced patiently. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with arguably depressing subject matter. They're sometimes dealing with characters that people don't necessarily identify with in an idealistic sense. Um, and so they're not super projections of our most idealized selves. They're like aspects of our more like shadowy elements of existence. So it's, 
anti-heroic it's morally ambiguous it's paced slowly it's depressing albeit you know filled with dark humor at times Mm -hmm. um both films we're discussing like have all of that uh but they're also gorgeously photographed Mm. incredibly atmospheric and so in that sense with those two things combined incredibly cinematic they're why you want to go to the movies to be like delivered into another world essentially to see things we haven't seen before so the two films we'll be discussing today are like two follow-ups to festival favorites arguably Mm. um we have Chiraguera's Birds of Passage, which is uh, his follow-up to Embrace of the Serpent, which we've discussed in the podcast. And we have Tim Sutton's Donnybrook, which is his follow-up to Dark Knight, which is not that Dark Knight. <laughs> it's another Dark Knight, which I think we discussed like briefly yep. on, a, on a podcast, right? Because mm-hmm, it was on Netflix and we had heard about it, yeah. Yeah, I had seen it at AFI Fest, I think in 2016. And it was uh, the first movie I saw like for for that festival that year and it was like right after a particularly troublesome election outcome everybody was a little shaken up so like the intro to that movie he was like you know this was made arguably in more innocent times but it seems to be reflecting the unease that we're transitioning into an unease that has really taken hold and become like a sort of death grip around us so um tim sutton seems to be somebody who's able to diagnose dire times like with cinematic answers that people don't are not are certainly not going to be comforted by but with donnie brook his his latest um i knew very little about it like even after it's it made its kind of festival run with mm-hmm. toronto and fantastic fest it was just <clears throat> announced as coming out and um going into it didn't watch a trailer um just you know saw some of the cast saw the rough outline of what it was about about a a father of a family who's desperately trying to keep his family together in a sort of destitute forgotten america where he uh he steals money for a submission fee to get into a bare knuckle fight who's prize money he will provide his family with should he win and like that course is sort of uh he's tethered to this other um family in the form of like a brother and sister who are drug dealers in the same area that he was living in Mm. uh this father played by jamie bell um and the brother and sister played by frank grillo and margaret qualley like they're they're tethered together because his wife, who he's trying to keep clean, is addicted to the drug. Brother and sister sell. They're locked into a conflict together, and they're sort of fated to do conflict towards the end of this movie. And like over the course of this movie, you're watching all of these kind of like fates intersect and collide through this desolate, hollowed out, albeit gorgeously photographed America. And yeah, it's just like it's it's a hard sell of course but like i just was so into the the performances and the sort of ride and like even if it's a ride through gloom it's like such a beautifully poetic experience yeah and like i i think that we do have to take a hard look at 
at doom essentially because it's like i know that that's what we're all trying to like frantically avoid through escapist entertainment but like there's something so incredibly poetically reflective in work like this and i think it's such a gigantic leap forward stylistically you know just through like storytelling as well um it's not like it i think it's a subtly um captured movie but mm. there's the tones in it are not subtle like no. it's a very melodramatic movie <clears throat> um so yeah what tell me about your experience with it yeah well i like what you're building off of what you just said there like it's it's not subtle but it is it is in some ways but it's like the dialogue is very portentous and yeah. it the dialogue is is i think approaches and becomes a it takes on a sort of greek tragedy type of thing where mm-hmm. you know like the opening scene of donny brook is just this gorgeous quiet shot on a river as a boat is traveling up it and the the symbolism is not hard to take like he's sort of going you know to hell like he's being transferred down the river to hell right like where he's going jamie bell uh could be could be his only opportunity at prosperity but uh it's probably dooming him it it gives off this feeling but then there's this man who sort of almost narrates in the beginning to, you know, just sort of talking about the state of things. Like, you know, the whole country is run by criminals, nothing to live for except vice and indulgence. These are things that are really on the nose to the movie and to the things it's speaking to. But I actually think that really works in this context because, interestingly enough, both the movies, but Donnybrook especially, is, is a hard sell, but it's Tim Sutton actually trying to make something more approachable because this is this yeah. is him sort of leaving behind the the sort of dreamy woozy poetry of something like Dark Knight which is kind of an elliptical story that you you can take all kinds of things from it's about a certain moment but it tells it in a way that you can never really get a handle on any specific narrative or character this is Donnybrook as Tim Sutton sort of putting his style into a more generic narrative context. You know, you've got this thing it's going to, to the end, this bare knuckle fight Um, ideas we've seen in other genre movies, but it is also uh, a sort of uh, no country for old men, like, uh, you know, crime saga that follows disparate narratives that are linked together. And um, you know, yeah, you you describe it as doom and, and I don't disagree, but that's sort of the thing. That's the tension in the movie that keeps it moving forward where I'm just like, Jesus, like this movie wastes very little time in setting up yeah. its characters. And yeah. that helps, I think, leave in the sort of um, on the nose, pretentious, <laughs> uh, not pretentious, but portentous dialogue. That's there's just every line is so loaded in this movie, but that works when it's <clears throat> offset by the, uh, the, the, the for me the real like suspense and te- tension that just kept me hooked watching this movie like where is this all gonna go and yeah. it's gonna get worse before it gets better but um I I'm all for like a director like this trying to wade into genre material because I think you get something a little more like like Donnie Brook that stands out from the pack and it might it doesn't automatically mean like I just want to see depressing version of genre movies it's just hey this is this is what's exciting to me this is what makes it not a tough sell uh for me is like i want to see another version of a crime story and this is this is a really interesting view uh that that's hard to deny uh especially when you know we look at where we're at right now um yeah yeah so i I think the movie works on a lot of levels it's you 
brought up No Country for Old Men, and I think it shares like a lot of similarities with that in terms of like tone and atmosphere. And um, I know we kind of like ponder 2007, the year that uh, No Country for Old Men came out. 2008. Just 2007. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. (laughs) In your face, slam dunk. Um, No, no. It was 2000. Sure, it won an Oscar in 2008, but it's 2007. Anyway. So, like, we think about that year, like, as a kind of, like, weird anomaly that, like, No Country for Old Men was, like, a hit. You know, it was, like, granted, it was, like, it was not, like, a giant multiplex hit but it like it made a dent and an impression and it has since kind of like left its mark on a certain type of like art house cinema and now like we're at a point where you know a movie like donnybrook is like it leaves such an impression leaves such a, a sense of like impact that uh but you wonder to who because it's like it's coming out day and date um it's being released theatrically uh in a theater in santa monica the lemley theaters again glad they're there um but it's also coming out on vod it's an ifc release Mm -hmm. and so you know that it's like its reach is relatively limited and like that's a shame because it's like it's got such an incredible cast and such a sense of like vision to it and like that vision that seems to like share a lot kind of inherently with a movie like no country for old men is, is felt in the conversations that you were discussing and the dialogue in the beginning with the guy kind of leading Jamie bell, Jamie bell's character, jarhead Earl, like into the heart of darkness and that opening sequence in the boat where he's like kind of narrating the, the state of decay that we're in and then revisited in conversations with, you know, corrupt police officers that are saying that the world's going to hell. Like they're kind of poetic reflections and haunted conversations that seem to thread no country for old men together as much as this one. Yeah. And I think like, that's just like, we need with how frayed and fragmented and like kind of like fucked the, <laughs> the culture and country seem to be. I think that like the hard stares into the abyss like this are really like important, you know? And I think that like this cast, especially like we mentioned Frank Grillo, Margaret Qualley, who I think is like heartbreaking in this movie. Like you've you've probably seen her in leftovers. Um, She played one of the daughters in leftovers and, you know, Jamie Bell is incredible in this movie. The kid who plays his son is great. Um, you have people like Pat Healy from one of my favorites, Cheap Thrills, shows up in a sort of squirmy, uncomfortable role. And uh, tell me the name of the the actor who was in Standoff at Sparrow Creek, uh, James, James Badge Earl. James Badge Dale. Uh, Dale. Dale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always fuck up the last. These three names fuck me up every time. <laughs> Brian Austin, uh, <laughs> great. Um, so yeah, Pat Healy is great in this. Um, and like the James Badge, <laughs> tell me again, Dale. <laughs> Dale, he is like, we watched a movie with him like a few weeks ago, and like he is entirely different in this movie physically. Like, he's he looks like a physically different person, and it's a matter of like haircut and facial hair, but it's also like he carries with him a sense of a burden that's different than his character in standoff at Sparrow Creek. Also a sort of grim and unrelenting glimpse at, you know, a a pocket of forgotten America. And this is similar to that one. Like it's, this is a film that takes a hard look 
without moralizing at a, a kind of like pocket of forgotten white America. Yeah. And like the Donnybrook is a, seems to be a burning man for white supremacists. I don't, I'm not really entirely sure what it is, but it's like, it's, it's a, it seems to be militia oriented where there's like arms dealing going on and sort of general kind of like, partying but then it culminates in this big bare knuckle fight where it's a free for all it's not just one person versus someone else it's like an entire like melee a brawl and so the movie doesn't really other than a character saying the Donnybrook is no place for a kid it doesn't moralize the sort of like the horrific atmosphere it lets you wander through the hell that's been created of America or what's always been America. And it doesn't point at who's like, you certainly know that Frank Grillo's character, which like who's often played, you know, a hero, you certainly know that he is a force of destructive evil, but like, and nobody really gets out clean in this movie. It's not incredibly moralistic as sort of portentous as you, you know, mentioned that it, it can be at times. It's not aggressively moralizing. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and I think that's part of what's refreshing about it. There's an intelligence and also a faith in the audience intelligence yeah. in that filmmaking with it. Um, yeah. I also, I just, I wanted to speak to James Badge Dale again. It's just, he, the other movie I think we referenced the Coen brothers and no country for old men. He was in as well was uh, hold the dark from last year, you know, and he's playing a cop character in that. And it's completely different than the cop character he's playing in Donnybrook. Um, so yeah, just as a side note, like his, I really like that this actor is popping up in these like good, smaller um, yeah. indie indie style genre movies. Like he's this. a former cop in standoff at spirit. He's just cop of the year. He is squad he's... cop, corrupt cop of the, but cop of the year, nonetheless in movies. <laughs> yes. Um, it's true. Uh, but yeah, um, there, there's so much, um, there's so much strong filmmaking in Donnie Brook that it is a shame that it's, it, it's sort of, uh, like it's this it's this thing you 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 talked at the top of how we are gifted with a massive variety of movies right now because right. so much is being made but yet it's the same like more movies being made but there's still only the same few movies at the top that people either want to have even heard of or want to see in in like large numbers um and like i, I don't see that ever changing it's always going to be a thing where we're gonna like wish movies like this could find an audience a little bit more or like be given an opportunity um but without that being if if that's not going to be the case like um you know it, it it's it's too bad i mean i want <laughs> i want more people to see these movies but i'm i always go back and forth because i'm glad that donny brook can still exist in this um, in this cinematic landscape, it's just uh, weird how they're getting squeezed out more and more. And that's in a way what Donnybrook is about. It's about people that have been squeezed out uh, it, uh, into the margins. They don't have many options. And that's reflective of the way movies are being put out. Movies like this are being put out. They just have such a tough uphill battle. But um, nonetheless, it's it's been bought by an actual distributor, IFC. They're going to put it in some theaters. Um, the VOD release is 
hard to know how much of an impact it has or when something gets bought by Netflix, like hold the dark, like how well is that actually doing? It's, it's hard to know, but uh, I am glad it's out there because uh, you know, these are the kind of movies that we want to see, even if they are tough sells. And uh, I'd, lo- I'd love to see more people get turned on to them. Uh, it's just always going to be an uphill battle though. Yeah. Like there's, there's a toughness and a grit to this movie that I think, uh, extremes the wrong word but there there are people who sort of take the challenge of having you know uh unpleasant movies be like their forte you know and like uh yes transgressive movies which again i think this movie is like far too while not being moralizing it's far too humanistic to be like a transgressive film right but you know i I think that there is going to be a sort of tough gritty appeal to people but there's also just a gorgeousness to this like movies like uh just depiction of you know you could call it like it's i hate using porn as a as a yeah. analog but like uh people like talk about you know movies like this that take place in sort of run down decaying areas as ruined porn or poverty porn misery right. porn it's not nice to either porn or you know the misery that it's documenting <laughs> Let's just leave it out of it. But um, it, it's just sort of like relishing in a sort of a, a, a rust and rundown decay. But like this movie is sort of it's it's beautifully holding on uh, things that people like will avert their eyes from, you know, like whether it's a, you know, Margaret Qualley's character is sitting at um, like a picnic table in a park under like a sort of gorgeously overcast sky the camera closes in stops and then pulls back out simple but it's like simple stuff like that that's so like effective and so cinematic in a subtle way and like there's there's a scene where all the characters or a lot of the characters like finally meet back up on the way to the donny brook and they're sort of uh they're in this hideout office space in this sort of otherwise desolate uh, kind of business area yeah. of like an abandoned downtown and cop lights search through like this sort of darkened interior and hit the silhouette of everybody standing still trying not to be noticed. And it's just like those things that hold in these places that we avert our eyes from, I think are such a, like a window into like something crucial and something kind of like urgent and like therefore inherently cinematic in the sense of something that we haven't seen before. And I think that the things that they remind you and I from of like in a, in a cinephile sense are like, you know, you get the hits of like no country for old men and like a little bit of green room just with the sort of like grit and kind of jaundice quality of it. And um, you know, it's just like, it's, it's something that it's a, it's a harrowing piece of filmmaking Cause it's so, it is so dark, but it does have this sort of like humanistic urgency to it. And yeah, it's just like, I was like, I was really excited to see this almost immediately. Once the new year started, I got to see a, a press screening of it, like the first week of the year, essentially. And I was like, well, all right, we're off to a good start so far. Albeit, yeah. like, I know how hard this movie is going to have, like in terms of finding like a, a a larger audience, but like this is a great piece of filmmaking. It is, it is, and it's the so much of what you talked about is like the tension building in this movie. Like every scene, or there's like sequences 
um, that, that that's what makes it such a thrilling watch and so cinematic is there's just this tension going nonstop in it. Um, yeah. I also want to speak to the <clears throat> your point about uh, misery porn is nobody ever references like uh, some bullshit mainstream movie as being like happiness porn, you know, like, but yet don't we get plenty of those too? Or like whatever you'd want to call it. Um, uh, yeah. What would that be? Yeah. Cheerful porn, uh, <laughs> endorphin that, porn, endorphin porn. There you go. Endorphin porn. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, nobody ever does that. Cause it's like, well, I, I guess like, I guess that just speaks to the reality of a lot of people are there to switch off and feel good about something when they go to the movies. Um, however, you know, just, just, it's like always good to put out there that like, you can feel all kinds of things from movies and, you know, there, there is a lot of entertainment just in a different context to be gleaned from something like this, that, that is easily reduced or reductively described as misery porn. I don't like that term either, uh, for the reasons you laid out, but, um, yeah, I mean, if someone were to say that's what this is, I, I saw a couple negative reviews of Donnie Brook where that was described, uh, or it was described in that way, and I, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like that's not engaging with the material that's in front of you, um, right? And if you give this movie a, uh, a shot and want to go in and see a beautiful little like genre movie that's also speaking to our times right now. Like there's, there's a lot going on in this movie and it's, uh, it's completely worth your time. So yeah, I don't, I don't get why we don't, uh, accuse like every Disney movie of endorphin porn. We don't, we just figure, well, that's, that's what I think it's squirmy to associate porn with Disney period. Um, yeah, that's true. (laughs) But, uh, just with family films, it's just a, it's a gray area. None of us really want to stay in. Um, get me out of here. But, uh, yeah, I think I already mentioned Jamie Bell as like, uh, you know, he's the if there's a main character, it's him mm-hmm. and his depiction of Jarhead Earl. And he was also in a movie that is not entirely dissimilar um, and a filmmaker who, despite the, you know, like his his complete eclectic sensibility um, has made films that kind of feel like they are in the same terrain as Donnybrook, but David Gordon Green, Jamie yeah. Bell worked with Undertow. on Undertow. Yeah. And like, that's just kind of traffics in the same kind of abandoned America and, you know, like movies like George Washington sort of kind of feel like they're, they're in the same camp of depicting like a, a forgotten pocket of, of this country. And, um, no, Jamie Bell is really like he's a force to be reckoned with in this movie, and he's somebody who I think continues to make really interesting choices uh, in terms of like the the brave work he wants to do. Yeah, no doubt, he's one of those young actors that you know kind of blew up in the scene with with Billy Elliot, you know, and he's since yeah. taken such interesting turns to work with auteurs. You know, he popped up in Nymphomaniac, so he's worked with Lars von Trier. Yeah, he's. He's one of these, uh, this class of young actors that really is auteur focused and seems to be okay working in the smaller, uh, budgeted realm of movies. But like these, these examples of like the Donnie Brooks of the world where there there's, you know, actors, you know, are that we've listed they're in this movie. That's another step up for director Tim Sutton here is he's working with, um, you know, like actors that you've seen before and other things, not just, uh, people he's met off the street, you know? Uh, like he cast in, in Dark Knight and stuff. So, uh, yeah, Jamie Bell has just uh, taken a very interesting career path. And I, I think it's the reason movies like this can even 
you know, find any audience at all or even be taken seriously and, and, and get the recognition they need is because there's some famous people in it. And, uh, I love that. And he is, uh, he's becoming a very interesting, uh, actor, Jamie Bell, for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, I can't take anything away from, from Frank Grillo doing his best, like Anton Chigurh, uh, Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. And it's not like he's ripping that off or anything. He's just a, an analogous character to this movie. And God, well, you, just you do so get terrifying. hints at like a complicated interior life with Frank Grillo that you kind of don't necessarily get with Javier Bardem's depiction of Anton Chigurh. Like it's true. Yeah. He's kind of a void, you know, in the same way that uh, Rucker Hauer is and the hitcher, you know, where right. you're just like, there's, there's not, there's like an absence of a psychology. That's the most frightening part. Whereas you see how kind of, cross the wires are with Frank Grillo's character. And there's like a real, uh, there's a volatility to him that, that does stem from like a suppressed emotion. And like, it's, it's really frightening. Like, you know, for, for a, an incredibly likable screen presence as like Frank Grillo has, you know, like he, I think he was the best part of purge anarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a similar kind of volatility in in his character arc in that film where he's just like, there's a rage that like has been contained until it can't be contained anymore. And uh, yeah, he's truly frightening in this film. Yeah. And he's doing, he's like evolving as an actor to more where like he's, he's really great with dialogue, like Wheelman that the Netflix movie reviewed a couple years ago was fun because he's gets to do his action work that he's really great at you know he's a physical presence but he's really good with dialogue he has a way with words that it's like a new take on the tough guy action hero type right Um, and you know donnybrook eliminates a lot of that he says very little in this movie uh he's again a physical presence that's also leaning into a more terrifying sense that he is a scary looking dude you know and he really plays with that in this movie Um, and it's, it's impressive. Um, so yeah, he's an actor. I think we've been, you know, we've been shouting him out. I feel like every year he pops up in something and, uh, it's, it's also cool to see him evolving, uh, cause he's proven to be a really gifted actor, uh, himself. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess before we, uh, maybe pivot over to our other movie, I, I also, another movie I thought of, uh, was one that we championed a couple years ago. Um, catch me daddy. Yeah, uh, Donnybrook has a similar vibe to it, where it's just a doom gray, overcast aesthetic, you know, that is there, and it's it's a genre movie, but done with other things on its mind. And Catch Me Daddy is set in in uh, the UK, whereas this uh, Donnybrook is a deeply American story. Um, but they would make for a really uh, a really great tough sell double feature, so I recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard enough getting anybody to watch one of these movies, but double down. Yeah. It's just such a small release. You know, it's worth championing. Catch me daddy again. Make sure all faith in humanity is abandoned. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Um, Well, Hey, we're halfway through uh, our misery porn episode. Let's, let's pivot into the other film. What do you say? Let's do it. Our second film, uh, birds of passage. Uh, you mentioned at the top is it's a Colombian film. Uh, you had mentioned that it is the follow-up from embrace of the serpent director, uh, Ciro Guerra. It, it's actually, this one is uh, not even technically it's co-directed with it's, uh, it's a duet. Yeah. Yeah. With Christina Gallego. I think, I think 
uh, is his uh, wife or partner in life. Uh, I've also read that maybe they're not together anymore, but nonetheless, they've been making movies together. But she actually got co-director credit on on Birds of Passage, which I think is uh, is is you got to shout that out. You got to point that out, of course. Of course. But um, now, having said that, Sierra Guerra, you know, after Embrace the Serpent, uh, which was my number one film, I think it was from 2015 or 16. So a couple of years ago, that was my favorite movie of the year. Yeah. Um, needless to say, I love this director's work. Uh, a movie he made before Embrace is called The Wind Journeys, which despite, I hear you laughing, despite its sort of uh, cliched, subtitled uh, festival movie type title in The Wind Journeys, is actually a really vibrant, alive piece of work. Uh, about well, all a- of them have those titles. Like That's true, right? <laughs> Embrace of the Serpent. Birds okay. of Passage. <laughs> birds of pat like they're all they all kind of fall into the potentially satirical film festival art house cinema title yeah you can hear those you can hear those titles (laughs) sorry i'm sorry you you can hear those titles and just roll your eyes and be like oh that just sounds like boring yeah pretentious art house cinema but that that's a good place to start because his films are never that they always have uh, a sense of humor to them or uh, or uh, a structure or uh, something that it's leaning on that gives it actually an accessibility from anybody who just likes movies, I would say. Yeah. Um, because Guerra is a deeply uh, cinematic filmmaker. Like his stuff looks and sounds incredible. Um, but he also does have this weird art house sensibility that um, to me is never pretentious, like the titles might suggest. It's just instead, it's like he has a unique perspective as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and even though this one is co-directed with with Christina Gallego, it, it, none of that seems to have gone away. This is still very much from the guy that made Embrace of the Serpent and, and in that style, but uh, also has. Um, it's funny that we, you know, we we led this all off as these are tough sell movies. This is a hard sell, Birds of Passage, yet. Also, like Donnybrook, this sees these filmmakers trying to step into something more clearly generic. Like this is a crime epic for last for yeah. lack of a better description. Absolutely. And in that, it's it's one of the more exciting crime films that I can think of. You know, like right. I, I put it up there with some of the best of the two thousands, like City of God and A Prophet. But um, yeah, you know, like I feel like that's a great place to start. But um, you know, w- what did you think of the movie, Joe? I didn't see it. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> the end. I, I thought that like it, I'm glad that you brought that up, that these are kind of like almost like outsider views of kind of more traditional genre cinema, yes. you know, where yes. like, and so with something as, as potentially wrote as the sort of the drug Lord saga, like there's just something so potentially uh, assembly lined about, that type of film. And we've certainly seen the assembly line creation of, of that genre, like time and time again. And there's been like breakout visionary, you know, uh, crime films that have set the tone and become the blueprint, but this is in no way following the, the trajectory of films before it. Like it's, it's about uh, kind of like a, a sense of tradition in Colombia that like we have very little access, to it's like ways of life that like once the drug trade is incorporated into it is entirely corruptive and um uh the the filmmakers have discussed like about this film that they it's usually like the 
the sort of drug saga is usually from the American perspective. Yeah. And it's not as steeped and rooted in the places where drugs often come from, in this case, in Colombia. And so to take that viewpoint, never stray from it, and just sort of almost like tangentially hint at the American influence, which like eventually does become like a corruptive force, just mm-hmm. the sort of inherent greed of like capitalism and expanding and just becoming bigger and bigger. Like that's, that's not necessarily entirely uh, an American phenomenon just seems more of a capitalist phenomenon, Mm -hmm. but it's a diseased part of our culture for sure. Um, And so watching that corruptive force in these kind of like uh, traditional kind of family tribal structures in Colombia is like, it's a totally like unique experience. And then you incorporate the, the sort of elders of the community. They have dreams of what they think, like they let their dream life inform the decisions, like the political decisions of like the, the families and, and sort of tribes in this area. And like you, you sort of like let that, slip into the sort of landscape that is already, you know, like not overly familiar. And it's just like this beautiful uh, entry point to like a genre that could be totally rote and totally like dead endedly predictable, you know? And it's like this, it's, it's like this beautiful view again, like uh, there's like a lot of desert landscapes, a lot of barren landscapes, similar to like Donnie Brooks abandoned kind of like industrial America. Like there's something barren about it, but there's also something gorgeous about the expansiveness about, you know, like the, the, the potential, the sort of like the West kind of expansiveness of it. Yeah. And it's a movie that's shot on film, which like, you know, I, I, another part of that same interview that I referenced was that, uh, you know, they were asked, like, why did you shoot on film? And she she had mentioned uh, she's kind of like, you know, us where it's like, it's not better or worse. It's just different. And like talking about the sort of risk of shooting on something that's finite and the sort of magic that that the risk of that becomes magical. And uh and then she's like, and it looks better. <laughs> okay, so it is better. But you are taking a stance, and that don't don't be overly diplomatic. Yeah, yeah, it's it okay. better. <laughs> um, I I'm really glad you point that out because yeah, in, in, the the previous film, Embrace of the Serpent, with its black and white photography, and especially its like completely immersive sound design, um, and its very particular odd sort of tribal score in that film was just stunning. It was such a stunning movie to look at that, that photography in that movie stood out. And then to see them go in a different direction, but yet you can still tell these are from filmmakers that really value the image, the quality of like a a beautifully framed image. Um, This one just goes into these stark, you know, dry desert, colors these browns and sometimes occasional reds or you'll get these landscape shots where the weather it's such a flat landscape in this desert you can see the weather approaching it and right the talk about portentous there's so much imagery in this movie that is portentous is doomed and is sort of speaking to what's going on um so it's like feeding what's going on in the foreground the stuff in the background it's really beautifully composed um in that way uh, but yeah, you can't deny it. Birds of Passage is, is a beautiful, beautiful film. And uh, yeah, I, I do agree that the sort of crime epic 
it it is i think it's even beyond rote at this point as a genre it tends to be one of my favorite kinds of movies but uh just like horror cinema there's a lot of sort of bad or just middling been there done that examples in the crime yeah. genre and i think a lot of it a lot of uh, the good stuff in the genre um, in the last, uh, say, from the 2000s on has tended to come from other countries that seem to be taking the, uh, you know, the good, the Scorsese Goodfellas style of crime films. Or, you know, you go to the, like, one of the pinnacle examples is The Godfather uh, is, you know, Birds of Passage has those elements. You can recognize that it's something it's like a structure that is familiar for anybody with those kind of movies to come into. But it's it's uh it's sort of a genre exercise at the same time where it's it wants to give you that different perspective it's not the american perspective yeah. um so that's refreshing but also it has a feel and a vibe a dreaminess it's structured via not chapters but songs i really like mm-hmm. that uh, all of these things is like yeah this is potential like pretentious art house crap and it never is it's just like a really great balance between uh generic crime epic storytelling or filmmaking with uh, this weird dreamy art house quality. Um, I feel like a good way to describe this movie is like for anybody that has seen uh, you're going to boo the, the, the Johnny Depp movie blow from like, you know, 16, 17 years ago or whenever it came out. Uh, Imagine uh, there are characters in the beginning of birds of passage that are these Americans visiting that sort of turn the characters we follow onto like, Hey, if we can supply these Americans with weed, we might have an actual business here. And there it's as if you follow, you know, Johnny Depp at one point in blow, he becomes a drug, a weed dealer first in that movie. If I remember right, before he, he starts importing Coke and working with like Pablo Escobar birds of passage is sort of um, everything preceding the sort of Escobar, like mm-hmm. low era of the drug trade. It's the seeds of it. It's what really started it. And because it focuses on the people that are from that area providing the drugs, it can have similar arcs, but also just give you this whole new refreshing glimpse at it. Um, and I think that's, that's really awesome. It's something I really took to with this movie. Yeah. There's, there's like the, the rails that this type of genre movie can get on just the crime genre I think they just become sort of like hypnotized givens where you're like, yep, of course, this is where the loose cannon guy sets off a series of events, (laughs) you know, blah, blah, blah. Yep. But like everybody, there's, there's so many different types of characters and a variety of characters represented in what's essentially, you know, these are working class people like, or not, not even working class. I mean, they're people who live on the complete fringes of, you know, like society essentially. And like you have the people who grow the weed that are essentially farmers, that that's the working class, but you never, you never get to a place where it's like these, uh, I think the filmmakers pointed out also that like a series like Narcos in its yeah. depiction of Pablo Escobar essentially establishes him as a superhero when he's responsible for an incredible amount of bloodshed and genocide. Right. And so like you're dealing with people who like, albeit they're capable of monstrous things. They're all just like people struggling. And like that, that humanizing I think is like, is, is again, sort of like, that's what likens it a little bit to Donnybrook and that like no one's, 
you know, entirely vilified. They're all just like trying to find their place in the world in this sort of environment steeped in traditionalism that is now approaching a sort of new world possibility Mm -hmm. of wealth and abundance and how the two essentially just like lock into a, a downward trajectory of doom. Like one's not responsible over the other, you know, the, we, our entry point to the story is uh you know who's arguably the main character uh is attempting to get um some like an offering together to the family of the woman he wants to marry yeah they call it a dowry exactly a dowry where it's like a a certain amount of like cattle a certain amount of just like you know, an, an offering. And the only way he's going to be able to do this is taken through a shortcut of dealing a tremendous amount of drugs to the American characters you mentioned. And so like this sense of tradition and the shortcut to the tradition is essentially what locks him and the family into this like trajectory that ends in doom. So it's like the, you're, you're having this sense of traditionalism and a sense of like newfound, like this corruptive force and they're both entangled until you don't know what's responsible for what. Yeah. But it's like people just scrambling to keep what they care for alive. And that that's another thing that likens it to Donnybrook and another thing that kind of makes it a, a relatable, but a hard sell, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> cause there isn't a sort of like overarching moralizing that people can cling to, which I think is very important for people nowadays that they just, they need something identifiable as the, Oh, this is right. And this is righteous. Right. I'm glad I'm having this affirmed for myself as opposed to the murky discomfort of like, I don't know how, I don't know how terrible people can be like, I certainly certainly don't want to take a look at it for a long time. Although you and I do, you know, (laughs) So yeah, like it's a they are there are an interesting kind of like double bill that you know like sort of answer each other in, in weird ways. But yeah, like, right, right. And who would have thought that when you compare the two movies, just just you know on the surface. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about the idea of this movie being a really strong anti-capitalist statement. You know, and and movies have definitely waded into this territory. I I think probably as long as they've been made, you know, for more than a hundred years, but I do think uh, we're going to continue to get more movies from all over the place, not just America, you know, like this one being a Colombian film that are going to continue to really maybe do this sort of thing where they rework uh, genres that are familiar to us, but maybe do it with a more clear sort of like, maybe it's not even that simple to just say it's anti-capitalist, but just pointing out how that's the overarching thing that sort of is dooming everybody. There's the way tradition and uh, you know, uh, these new ways to make money fast in birds of passage that sort of are entangled as you pointed out. And yeah, but it's, it's that thing hanging over all of it is so many scenes immediately when the drug dealing begins bird of passage, it's everything becomes transactional. But in fact, it was transactional from the beginning. As you pointed out, this, this main character, I think his name is Raphael or, or Rafi. They refer to him. Yeah. He, he's immediately, so he, he's so great. And he's, he's wrapped up in that tradition that already is a transactional thing. So it's, it makes sense that it would be, um, this culture could so easily slide into like a greed that comes from that when real money starts to come into play and a, and a booming business that immediately takes off. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take long for all these people that have, 
where, you know, as the movie starts to skip through time and you're, you're each chapter that starts a new, you, you're sort of realizing, okay, some time has passed. They've, you know, you're putting the pieces together as what's happened and, and how successful they've been. You're, you're realizing like it did not take long for everybody to just slide into that greedy transactional thing. Yeah. And, um, I think that's a really, um, I actually find it quite a subtle statement on that, uh, in, in a way where like last year, uh, the movies that stood out to me that were really anti-capitalist is the main one was sorry to bother you and did it in its own crazy, almost sci-fi like way, comedic way. Um, birds of passage is another take on it. Vox Lux from last year was, I thought a quite a, uh, anti-capitalist film in many ways. So, I, I think this is a trend that is going to keep bubbling to the surface in cinema because that is the thing that we can look at as being like the, the root of a lot of problems. And uh, I don't know if it's going to change people's minds, but boy, it really makes for an, a fascinating evolution of genre cinema. And I'm all for it. You know, that this movie lays it out really, really strongly. Well, and it's not unfamiliar to um, Ciro Guerra's. Even you can notice from the beginning of the episode how my pronunciation of his name has changed uh, <laughs> from Eric's influence. But um, in his previous film, Embrace of the Serpent, like that's definitely hinted at as you have like this character. You know, it's like jumping between timelines, um, but this kind of colonist um, imposition on this like untapped resource of the, the jungles and how he, he's looking for, um, you know, all these resources and he, he has a guide, uh, through the jungles and finally is confronted, um, by the guide by saying, okay, how many of these things are you just going to turn into death? And it's just like, that's capitalism. It's turning everything into death, like reducing it to just a product and every, exchange being a transaction is just like there's a dead end to it because it's there's a bottomlessness to it that you just have to keep taking until it's all gone and it's just not about a, a sort of a relationship to a landscape or to a family that takes care of each other but a, a sort of fundamental nature uh, or just a fundamental experience of exploitation and using and utility and like that that is like a dead end and so it's one that the filmmaker is continuing to explore in in birds of passage and one that like uh, you know it's not that's its outcome is no less grim but you know it's it's one that we need to take a hard look at Hard looks, hard <laughs> yeah, looks, well, hard sells. It's true, and I also think he's really. I I I I don't feel like it's overselling to say like there is something that makes this director's movies stand out more than the the titles might suggest. Because I think while you and I even just poke fun at that idea of like, oh, it just sounds like any sort of you know art house festival. Merchant type Ivory movie. Porn. Yeah, yeah, Merchant Ivory. Exactly. It it's easy to dismiss that, but then it's like you see this guy stands out. Guerra's films really tend to stand out because I think in his own way he's got like he is a he's a real filmmaker that, you know, shooting on film matters to them and things like that, but giving everything a cinematic um quality to it, like building yeah. things up and immersing you in that he he wants to entertain, but also he has things he's trying to get across as well. There's like a real beautiful balance to his filmmaking. And I think it's what makes him one of the the most exciting filmmakers that's working today. And 
Uh, I believe, I don't know if there's a title of it, but his next movie is one to look out for where he's going to do, I believe, an English language movie with Robert Pattinson. Um, so, you know, we had referenced, uh, Jamie Bell has become yeah. one of these, these actors, Robert Pattinson's one of the, the sort of pinnacles right now, these young actors that had a lot of success in the mainstream realm and now are just choosing strange, uh, strange projects to work on with filmmakers, auteurs that are out there around the world and giving them yeah. chances. So, um, I think that's very exciting and I'm, uh, I'm both not surprised that Guerra is becoming one of these directors. Um, I think he could be the next like Yorgos Lanthimos, you know, that uh, he comes and starts making English language stuff and it could be just the right sort of bridging of his sensibility, his particular cultural sensibility with English language titles. And maybe it gives us, you know, and if it gives us, uh, you know, a lobster or, or, or a killing of a sacred deer or his, the favorite, uh, I am all for that because it's, it's, it's worked out well for, for Yorgos and I'd like to see the same for, for Sierra Guerra. So yeah, uh, uh, so much excitement still to come, I think, from this director. But uh, don't sleep. Don't sleep on Birds of Passage. If, if you get a chance to see it in a theater, it's going to maybe be, you know, it'll be in Portland here in about a month, uh, mid-March. It's coming to one theater here, one of the art house theaters, Living Room Theaters. Um, I think it opens in L.A. this Friday. Is that correct, Joe? It does. Um, it opens, again, at the the Lemley Theaters, which is a, is a cha- chain of art house theaters, and it uh, opens at the Royal on the 15th, Donnybrook at the Monica Center, um, I believe, on the 15th as well. There you go. And I think the company that is putting out Birds of Passage, The Orchard, I have heard recently uh, from people much more in the know than me that 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 they are actually going to fold or they may have already announced no. it. I know. Really? Yeah. See that. And I don't mean to end us on a, on a bummer note, but it's uh, the reality of like, they've, they've become one of these interesting little distributors of, of good, you know, movies like this, but uh, they've, they've, I think they've struggled. And uh, that's a shame because I was so glad that they picked up birds of passage and it's even getting a U.S. release at all um, because it, it has to be in some cinemas. It's just that good of a movie. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a shame. We'll see. I've I've heard that they're going to be absorbed into another company, so it's not like they're gone. The Orchard. It's just going to become something else. So maybe that's the same sort of doom. But uh, it's a shame. Yep, capitalism. Fucking capitalism. Exactly. What else are you going to turn into into death? <laughs> exactly. All right. So what do you say? Should we wrap it up on that note? Let's do it. So just chill to the next episode. Uh, episode 198 of Adjust Your Tracking is coming to an end. You can find, uh, again, our episodes at theplaylist.net. And, of course, uh, the episodes of our other shows, uh, like Indie Beats, uh, The Playlist Podcast, and Be Real. Those are our other shows at the moment. And uh, you can email us any thoughts you'd like to have, anything you'd like to recommend us. Let us know if you've seen any of these these smaller movies we've been touting uh, at the beginning of this year. Uh, email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Rate review us on your podcatcher of choice. That would be extremely helpful. And uh, pass us around if you like us. Let people know that you like our like our show, like what we do. We'd be very thankful, but um, nowhere near as thankful as I am just to get to uh, chat movies with you, Joe. I don't care how doom lading and sad and depressing it can be. I love talking movies with you. So thank you, buddy. Or how portentous or pretentious. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. 